The first part of the reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and can be found on page 1132 in the Church Bibles. That's Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And the second part of the reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. It can be found on page 1135. What then shall we say in response to this? For if, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Before we dive in though, I'll lead us in a prayer. We've just prayed this in our song. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Our gracious Heavenly Father, that is our prayer as we come to your word now. That by the power of your spirit, Father, you would give us understanding, clarity, and give us changed hearts, Father, so that we would have hearts that are occupied by you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, French author André Jeard said this. I'm not going to do the accent. Man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air,
but for only one second without hope. See, hope is vital to life. We need to know that our lives are heading somewhere. We, we need to be able to dream. We thrive on the expectation that things are going to be better in the future. See, hope is so vital that if we don't have hope, it's kind of dehumanizing. Hopelessness saps the life from us. Perhaps you've known people who have lost hope. Or perhaps you are someone who has lost hope. And if you've any experience of that, you will know just how destructive it is not to have hope. We all need hope. We could say, to hope is to be human. But the thing about hope is that it always needs an object. You can't just hope in the abstract. You you need to hope in something or someone. And with the shift in our Western world away from the Christian worldview, the objects of our hope have shifted as well. And so if if you ask people what they hope in, it's unlikely that people would say that they hope in God or the life to come. But they were, hope is sought in things from this world. Now, that can work in two ways. It can work on a national level. We can all collectively find hope in building a better world, of seeking peace instead of war, of using our resources responsibly. But hope also works on a personal level. I'm sure it's something that we, every single one of us has hopes. Perhaps we have hope that we would succeed in our career. Or we hope in building the perfect family. Or we hope in what we can buy and own. Now, the problem is with hoping in things of this world is that those things can be threatened. See, we might hope for peace, but it only takes one chemical attack and war enters our world again. Or we might hope that one day we will get the feeling of having made it in our careers, of kicking back in the lever executive chair at the top of our organisation. But it only takes one mistake or one missed opportunity for that hope to be threatened. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to us as Christians, I think we can fall into similar patterns of thought. We can think that our hope of entering God's glory, of his new world, might be threatened. It's like the hopes we find in this world. How might it be threatened? Well, perhaps we worry about God. Yes, God has made wonderful promises to me about the future, but what if God changes his mind? Or what if I haven't believed in the right way? Or perhaps we worry about us. Yes, I believe in God's promises today, but if I'm honest, I know what I'm like. I know how easy it is for me to fall into sin. What if some temptation comes that I can't resist? What if I get caught up in a sin that takes me away from God? Or perhaps we worry about life in this world. Yes, I'm hanging on as a Christian today, but do you know what? If suffering comes, I don't know if I could. If the unthinkable happened, I don't know whether I could still trust God. See, it's easy, isn't it? Hopefully it's not just me. But um, it's easy to, to doubt the hope we have as Christians, to, to feel that those things are threatened. 
Which is why these chapters in Romans are so vital to us. See, Romans uh, 5 to 8 are there to assure us of our future. They are there to assure us that we have a hope that cannot be moved and a God who will deliver on that hope. How do we see this? Well, Paul, throughout this section, goes, um, Paul's right in the letter, and he goes through um, potential threats to our hopes or reasons we might doubt. Now, I've tried to represent these on the diagram on your handouts. Thanks to Hannah in the office for doing a great job with the artwork. It's much better than I could have done. Um, but uh, obviously I'm generalising here, but hopefully this just gives us a, a rough framework for what's going on in these chapters. See, I think Paul works through three perspectives or three camera angles. First of all, he starts with what I've called the up or our relationship with God. Then in chapter 6 to 7, he deals with the in or the internal struggle with sin. And then in chapter 8, I was struggling a bit with this one, but he deals with the kind of around. um, He tackles the, the threat of the world of living in a fallen world. And for each of these perspectives, Paul shows us that we've been utterly transformed as Christians, that we have a completely different relationship in all three of these areas, with God, with sin, and with the world around us. So much so, and this is what I want us to see this morning, that none of these things can possibly threaten the hope of future glory. Now, this morning's meant to be an overview of chapters 5 to 8, which uh, means it's going to be very light touch, because I guess we've got Sunday lunches to get to. And um, I've already spent most of my time introducing things as well, so I've not helped myself. But um, I hope this morning uh, works a bit like a a trailer for a film. See, when you watch a movie trailer, you don't get frustrated that um, not everything's covered, because it's a trailer. And if it's... um, If it's a good trailer, which I hope this morning is, it makes you want to watch the film. And I hope that this overview of these chapters will do a similar thing, that it would make us want to come back. And not just come back, but but invest in prayer, in reading, in meditating on uh, these chapters as we hear them week by week. But also, um, like a trailer, I hope it's going to give us a feel for what, what these chapters are about. Um, I was speaking with someone uh, before the service began, and they were saying how easy it is for different passages to, to, to be isolated as we hear them week by week. And I, and I hope this works against that a bit, that as we hear each passage uh, spoken week by week, we will know how it fits in with this big theme, this picture of hope in these chapters. Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, well, hopefully it does as we go through. So let's have a look at this first one then. You are transformed in your relationship with God. One of the difficulties of salvation coming by faith alone is that it's difficult to trust whether that is enough to bring us through God's judgment. See, trusting God for his promise of salvation, I don't know about you, but it can just seem so ordinary. We don't do anything towards it. We don't contribute our works. We just trust. And because of that, we might have those moments where we ask, is that it? Is faith enough? Is is trusting Jesus' death really going to bring me through the fire of God's judgment? And in chapter 5, Paul deals with that doubt. 
And it's very interesting the way he deals with it. He, he turns our whole perspective on its head. See, when we worry about the future judgment, when we ask questions like, is my faith enough? We're assuming something. We're making the assumption that the point at which God makes a decision about us is in the future. But, Paul says, that is a mistaken assumption. In fact, the decision has already been made. See, throughout this chapter, Paul describes what is true for the Christian. And um, throughout, he uses the past tense. Just have a look at uh, that with me. It's on page 1132, chapter 5. Here's some examples. 5 verse 1, he says, we have been justified. We have peace with God. Verse 2, we have gained access into God's grace. Verse 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts. Verse 11, we have now received reconciliation. We could go on, but you get the point. It's all past tense. It's all done already. We have been justified. That verdict we heard last week that is passed on us to say whether we're right before God or not, it's happened. We have been reconciled. Our relationship status with God already reads reconciled. And it always will. So the judgment to come in the future is not a time where God decides whether we're acceptable or or whether we can enter into his glory. That decision has already been made. Now some of us will be asking, how's it been made already? I mean, how is it that God's verdict has been passed? Well, it's because the event that made it possible has already happened. Jesus has already died and been raised. Now, Paul shows us this in the second half of chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul compares Jesus to Adam. Now, why does he do that? Well, here are two men who took two actions which had consequences for many. See, Adam, he made the decision to, to sin in the garden, to break God's command. And what happened to him? Well, death entered the world. But it didn't just stay with Adam. It was like a crack spreading out on a windscreen. It spread out to all people so that we all share Adam's tendency to sin and we all suffer the consequence of death. But there was another man like Adam, Jesus Christ, who took a decision with far-reaching consequences. Have a look at 5 verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men and women. What's he getting at there? Well, he's saying that Jesus, like Adam, did one act. But it wasn't an act of disobedience like Adam, but it was the act of laying down his own life. And just like Adam, Jesus' decision didn't just affect him, it spread out to others. But gloriously, it's in the other direction. It didn't bring death. It brought life. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, we need to ask, when does this happen? And the answer is, I'm guessing for all of us here, it's before we've been born. See, the event that brought you and me reconciliation wasn't because of us. It was Jesus' initiative. He did it. 
And because of that, because Jesus has already died and has already been raised, there is not something else we're waiting for to add to it, to bring us to God. Everything is done. See, when it comes to trusting someone um, uh, about a future event, when we arrange to meet with someone or something like that, we, we're aware that people can let us down through their own thought or um, through circumstances beyond their control. I like to think I'm fairly organized. But a few months into my job here, uh, I came home on a Wednesday evening and I thought to myself, I, I haven't got anything on. Great result. Um, so I decided to veg out in front of the television all evening. But I don't know if you've ever had this. I had that kind of feeling that I should be somewhere else. But I checked the calendar. There was nothing in the calendar. Uh, Claire, my wife, didn't think I should be anywhere. And so I just ignored it. I couldn't quite place it and enjoyed the television. And, you know, anyway, next day I bounced up the stairs here at St. Mary's and bumped into Clive, our rector. And uh, he asked me where I was last night and uh, said to him, vegging out in front of the television. And then he reminded me it was the midweek prayer meeting. He was very gracious about it honestly. See, that happens, isn't it? That happens. When there's something to come in the future, there's always that chance, always that chance that something might change. But when something has already happened, it has happened. And it's similar here. Because we're, at, we're saved through the act of Jesus Christ, it's not us, not our works. We don't have to doubt whether God is for us in the future. The verdict has already been passed. That's chapter 5. In in chapters 6 and 7, Paul shifts his perspective. He he starts to speak about sin. Now, in chapter 6, the the focus is on sin itself. And in chapter 7, he brings in this topic of the law. But actually, it's still sin uh, in the background. Now, that might seem a surprising focus. Why spend two long chapters on the topic of sin. Well, remember the context. We're all about hope and assurance of hope. And so these chapters are here to assure us. Now, how do they assure us? Well, sin, I think, looks like a threat to our hope. See, when we struggle with sin, when we give in to temptation, when we fight in the battle, often we can doubt that we're really one of God's people. We do something like blow up at our family or find our hearts constantly lured by the greed of accumulating more and more. Or we find ourselves on websites we shouldn't be. And when that happens, you get that voice come into your head. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't be struggling with this. And I don't know about you, but when those things happen we can find ourselves holding off approaching God. We don't feel we could pray. And before long, we get into that kind of cycle of feeling condemned and feeling guilty and feeling more condemned. And before long, we lose our assurance and we doubt the hope in the future. Now, what's Paul's answer to this? Well, he shows us that our relationship with sin is utterly transformed. And he does that in two ways. Well, first of all, he shows us that we have died to sin. Just have a look at 6 verse 6 on page 1133. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. If I caught you outside after the service and said to you, when did you die? I guess you might look at me a bit blank and uh, wonder if I've been under the influence of some substance. But it's not a stupid question, is it? See, according to verse 6, you have died if you're in Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus died, it wasn't a private event. It wasn't something that only affected him. As he died, all that are in him died as well. Now, Clive's going to be speaking on this chapter, and I'm going to leave him the pleasure of explaining how precisely that works. But the key thing for us is this. It means that we have died to sin. See, sin once had complete power over us. As children of Adam, there was nothing we could do to stop ourselves sinning. Sin was like a demanding boss who kind of puts his shadow over our desk, breathing down our necks. We could never escape. But in Jesus, you have died to sin. Sin is no longer your master. Now, some of us are going to ask, does this mean we never sin? Well, I doubt it means that. That's why I think he's got to write these chapters. But it's not inevitable like it once was. Someone put it like this. It doesn't mean that we never sin. But it does mean that we never need sin. See, one of the lies of sin, one of the reasons I think it's so powerful is that we think it's inevitable. See, temptation comes along our paths and um, we say, look, I'm not strong enough. I have no choice. And it's true, you're not strong enough. But Jesus Christ is. And he has brought down sin's dominion over you. But secondly, in chapter 7, Paul shows us the other side of the coin. See, if chapter 6 gives us confidence in the battle with sin, chapter 7 reminds us that it is still a battle. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 22, over the page. He says this about his experience, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So there's a lot in there. So what's Paul getting at? Well, he says, look, I've got the desire to do right. He says Jesus has transformed him. He has the Holy Spirit. And so he wants to please God. But in the opposite direction, there's an opposing force. There's something that wants him to do the opposite. See, even though we have died to sin, our old self is still active. And Christians find themselves in what Paul describes as a war, a battle between the new self and the old self that still wants to sin. Now, how does that assure us of our hope? Well, it shows us that if you struggle with sin, you are in the right place. See, I know chatting with Christians throughout the years that a lot of people get depressed when they have to battle sin. And one of the reasons is is they think things have gone wrong. That if they were a proper Christian, they wouldn't have this struggle. 
But these chapters show us the opposite is the case. If we're battling, if we've got that desire to fight sin, it shows us that God is working in us. See, our battle with sin is not a reason to lose hope. It gives us hope that God is bringing us to glory. Finally, in chapter 8, we move to what I've called the around perspective. See, I think there's something else that threatens our hope. It's life in a fallen world. See, the Christian life often can feel like a paradox, can't it? On the one hand, God has made some incredible, unimaginable, glorious promises to us. But on the other hand, we live in a world where there is suffering and struggles and tribulations. And when we think about those two realities, it can cause us to doubt the hope that we have. When we receive the news from the doctor we feared, or we get that phone call we dreaded, or the black cloud of depression comes over us, or we're bereaved of someone close to us. We all get that question. What is God doing? Why is he allowing me to suffer? Has God not promised good to me? How is this good? And Paul gives us two very pastorally considered responses in this chapter. First of all, he shows us that suffering is to be expected. Have a look at 8 verse 23. He says this, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, as Christians, we're like children awaiting adoption. The papers have been signed, all the legal arrangements have been made, and we're in the car, we're on the journey to our new home. But he says the journey there is difficult. Almost everything is done, we're justified, we're reconciled, we're legally God's children, we have hope, but one thing remains. We, are still ha- we still have fallen bodies. We still need life in this world to be redeemed. And all the time we are in these bodies, in this world, we groan with the pain of decay, disease, and death. Now that might not sound like a message to give us hope, but, but it really is. Because it recognizes that if we suffer, it is the normal Christian experience. See, Christians through the ages have looked at these promises and concluded that we shouldn't suffer. And you get people saying that sort of thing around today. And it really isn't true and it's pastorally disastrous. Because suffering is not a sign that God is displeased with us or forgotten us. Suffering is not a sign that God is against us. Suffering is a sign that we've not yet arrived home. But there's a second part to Paul's response. It's it's not that we just kind of get left in our suffering to cope on our own. But God is at work personally with us. 8 verse 28. Have a look at that, please. It's a famous verse. Lots of us will know it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him 
who have been called according to his purpose. Notice what it says. All things. There is not an experience you will face. There's no suffering too great, no place too dark that God is not there for you, working for your good. There is no difficulty on the path to glory that God will not overcome. See, we will not often understand why we suffer, but we can be sure of this. God is there when we suffer. Even suffering cannot threaten our hope. There is nothing that God will come across our paths that God has not got the grace to get us through. See, through this whole section from chapters 5 to 8, Paul pulls up potential threat, potential threat, potential threat, after, one after the other, and he knocks them down. Nothing will take away the assurance of our hope, or should take away the assurance. God's judgment, our sin, suffering, Paul shows we have nothing that threatens us. And that's where he ends up in verse 35 of chapter 8. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will will be able to to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing. There is nothing. I said at the beginning that we all need hope as human beings, but the problem is that uh, any hope that is grounded in this world can be threatened. But these four chapters show us that the hope that God offers is absolutely secure. Why? Because it's a hope that doesn't depend on us. It's a hope achieved by Jesus Christ, by the giving of the Spirit, and by God working in us to bring it about. And nothing, not even suffering, not even death, not anything, will prevent it. Some implications then. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder where your hope lies. What is it you take confidence in as you think about the future? And how does it compare to this? See, I don't know about you, but I just think often we don't really think about our hopes. We kind of absorb them in from the culture around us. But these chapters get us to reevaluate our hopes and to offer you a hope that is in a different league to anything the world offers. A hope that is certain and will never disappoint. I wonder, would you come back and and use these chapters in, in the weeks ahead to examine the hope that you have and see how it compares? And actually, it's the same question for us Christians. Where does our hope lie? See, I think doubts about the future and things that threaten our assurance um, tend to kind of shrink our view on the future. And so we don't think about it as much. We get caught up in all the different hopes in the culture around us to hope in a house or a relationship or a family or a career or a good retirement plan. 
But those things, this reminds us, can all be threatened. But if you're a Christian, you have a hope that far outweighs these things that will never be threatened and will be delivered. Let's pray. He will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look through these chapters in the weeks to come, that you would assure us of this hope. Father, it is unthinkable, unimaginable to comprehend the love that you have shown towards us in sending your Son to assure us of this glorious future. We pray, our Father, that you would help us to see our lives with that perspective. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.